Welcome to The Breakdown with Broad Corbin Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Broadcorp. And I'm Becky Scher. In today's episode, we're going to start off with another incredible interview. We have Republican State Representative and Minority Leader Lisa Damoth in studio with us. We're going to break down the 2023 legislative session, the DFL's radical antics, and how Republicans and the public were left out of the process. We'll then break down the path forward for Republicans as we head into the election year and plans being made to take back the majority of the Minnesota House in 2024 for Republicans. We'll have a change of pace and go national next, breaking down a recent story in the presidential arena with a bit of local angle about Congressman Dean Phillips. Finally, we end the show with our typical tweets of the week and food fight with Broadcom and Becky. This week, we're getting fired up with our top food on the grill. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the show. Becky, uh, I have to give you a compliment again. Becky, we have a good division of labor on the podcast. Becky has gotten very saucy with the, the scripts. She's doing a bang-up job and helps with that, and she always gets creative when it comes to our food fight subject. So thank you, Becky, for doing that. You bet. It's kind of one of my favorite things right now. I have a personal shout-out to say. I celebrated my 25th wedding anniversary yesterday. We're recording this on a Wednesday. The show will come out tomorrow on a Thursday. I just want to give a shout out to my wife. Um, she's been with me for 25 years. She's been a rock of support through thick and thin, ups and lows. I couldn't be here without her today. Uh, and I'm so fortunate to have her in my life and be married. And it was a big milestone. I'm generally on a lot of uh, personal stuff like that, pretty quiet. I don't uh, tweet and post a lot about it. But yesterday was a big accomplishment. And I wanted to acknowledge my wife for just a few minutes on the podcast. Congratulations. That's exciting. What did you guys do or what are you doing to celebrate? Uh, we busy day with kids. Uh, we got some lunch together, uh, watched uh, a little TV and hung out, but it was a busy day traveling with kids. We hope to do more later this week. But as with with three kids racing around, there's not a lot of time. But it was uh, it was a it was a milestone that meant a lot to me. And uh, I'm glad I got to celebrate it uh, with her. Meant now, a lot. now, what kind of lunch did we do? Did we do a sit down? Did we do a McDonald's? We did it. We did not do McDonald's. Uh, we did a sit down. We did a sit down lunch. It was nice uh, at a at a local restaurant in the area. Uh, we hope to do more. We hope to do more down the road. But it was it was just important to acknowledge it and get some time and and uh, absolutely. Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. I'm, you know, a year and a half in. We're having our. Well, second wedding, because the first one was just our small one at the end of the year. So deep in wedding planning progress. But on my front, this weekend, I am going up north. It is our, I think, like 13th, 14th annual girls weekend. My mom is one of five girls, um, me and my sister, a couple of our girl cousins, and then some of the cousins' daughters as well. Um, I'll go up north. We have a, a Oh, one of my aunt-in-laws as well um, going up. So it's just a great thing. Usually we have, I think, somewhere around 20 ladies um, of all ages down to my nieces that are five up to to the oldest aunt. And, and it's great. We have a theme every year. This year is Halloween. So I will uh, tweet out an adorable photo of my group photo with my nieces and sister and uh, brother's girlfriend. So it's going to be a great one, but it also marks my first uh, night and not only night, but two nights in a row away from the baby. So holy moly. Yes, it is. Um, you know, he is about 14 months old and it has now, you know, we've gone on date nights and stuff, but nothing overnight. So um, he's going to be home with dad uh, and, and the in-laws are coming in to, to hang out with them as well. So I know he's in good hands, but um, I'm not going to lie. I might cry. 
That's <laughs> tough. Yeah. Well, I've said it before off air. I'll say it again. You are an absolutely wonderful mother. Thank that, you. That kid is blessed. Uh, and I have complete faith in your husband who I've never met, but I've heard wonderful things about that. There's that that kid's going to be taken very well care of. Oh yeah. They're going to have a good time. He's going to, the, the husband and father-in-law are going to go golfing. So grandma's going to get some solo time. They're going to do walks, great. probably play in the water table. Yeah. He's, he's not even going to notice I'm gone. That's great. And I have a great, uh, for, for this weekend, you have a way, you know, it'd be wonderful for you guys all to do is just listen to our podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So I have, you know, a shout out to my aunts. I got, I got a number of the aunts and my mom that listen. So that's fantastic. Well, wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to this week's show. And uh, Becky, thank you again for being here. Absolutely. Let's get into it. We are excited to be joined today by Leader Damoth. Thank you for joining us today. We're excited to kick things off. We saw a lot of really radical extreme policies being passed by the DFL this session. Um, You were recently in an article talking about it's probably going to be a while before that impact is truly realized for Minnesota families and Minnesota businesses. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation to be here with you today. Um, It was a really extreme and a fast moving session. And I think what happened with a lot of that was the policies and the provisions that were moved forward, they have a longer effective date later on. And so some of the good headlines that are, you know, kind of that clickbait thing that maybe look good on the surface, when you dig down a little bit deeper, some of those are very, very concerning. And do you think or or what's your experience in being part of those conversations at the legislative session of did they kick the can down the road to get it beyond the 2024 election so that People don't feel those things. And then they, you know, hopefully Democrats, you know, maintain majority in their eyes and then they'll, you know, we'll get hit by it after. Right. I don't want to really talk about motives because <laughs> I can't I can't really say that's for sure what the intent was. I think that is going to be some of the result. But I think what Republicans can do is we can make sure that voters remember and are aware of what has happened in this session and how it will impact them, probably negatively, but how it's going to impact the state of Minnesota. One of the discussion points that was uh, kind of a theme throughout the legislative session was the fact that Democrats campaigned one way and then governed another way. Do you have some examples during the legislative session? I think there was a a lot on the Social Security tax. There were a lot of House Democrats that campaigned on a full elimination. Um, But on just their overall progressive agenda, they went much farther during the legislative session than on the campaign trail. They did. And, you know, let's use that elimination of the tax on Social Security. That is something we heard at the doors. And really, Democrats and Republicans were all talking about it. We in the House, as Republicans, kept bringing that up. We would try to declare an urgency to bring that forward. And let's get that passed right away. Let's just end the tax on Social Security. And a couple months in... We finally heard the tax chair say not all Democrats campaigned on that. And so that was a true test of, okay, not all, but the majority of them. We would have an amendment and then on occasion, a Democrat might vote for that amendment to end it, knowing that full well, we weren't going to get the final vote on it. it was incredibly frustrating. That's just one example of campaigning one way. We heard that some of the Democrats were a little bit more moderate on their stance on social issues. It didn't result in final votes, maybe on amendments, but not on final votes. It was lockstep. That's amazing. You you mentioned the tax chair, Ann Rust. Um, I know she was chairing the um, conference committee. Can you speak a little bit to, we, we heard Senator Rust say Democrats have an insatiable appetite for, for raising taxes. 
They they blew away the surplus. They raised another $10 billion in taxes. Chat a little bit about how that all went down. Absolutely. You would think with um, almost $18 billion in surplus that some of that would have gone back to Minnesotans. And I just want to remind everyone, it didn't. Not a single dime in those promised checks of whatever amount have yet to go out to Minnesotans. So we wasted $18 billion in surplus. Some of it was one-time money, but almost half of it was, you know, it was structural. Um, raising the gas tax, raising transportation, adding to the state budget, adding to more FTEs on the government. There is an insatiable appetite to raise taxes, but I can't believe that is really what is affordable or sustainable for Minnesotans. That is not going to be sustainable as we move forward. This was your third legislative session. And one of the other themes that we've talked about is the level of partisanship that has come out of the Democrats this past legislative session. There wasn't a lot of space and opportunity for Democrats and Republicans to work together in good faith ways on the, on their particular side, that they've lost a lot of their kind of moderate middle edge. Was that reflective in your experience it, uh, in the past few years in the House? You know, it really was. And I think as we've had divided government over the last four years specifically, um, previous to this session, the last two terms were divided government. You could say that not a lot got done over those years. But just because there's full party control and watching how fast things moved through this time and how fast things were pushed through, I don't think that served Minnesotans well. I think divided government did bring us a little bit better balance. And so there was not the need for our votes. There was not the need for our input. Now, my style of leadership is very collaborative. So I was looking forward to how can we work together? How can we find great solutions and have input from both sides? We didn't really see that in the end results on anything. What would have been some examples on some issues that you would have found an opportunity to work with Democrats on that they missed out on? Sure. I think, you know, on taxes alone, right there, um, taxes alone and that tax on Social Security. Just listen to us. Let's do what Minnesotans had really wanted us to do. The other thing is a paid family leave. Now, a lot of Minnesotans do want that leave available when they need to care for a loved one or, or take time off. We understand that. And I think most employers understand that, too. But what was pushed through an untested policy that's coming through with a high tax on every employer, no minimums on the number of employees you might have, what that will do is that's going to actually take employers who are already providing a benefit and it's going to say, no, that's not enough. It has to be what the state is saying. And then you're going to have to be in it from there. We had an option that we could have worked together on and found solutions that would have worked for more Minnesotans, but instead it was just rammed through. And I have to keep thinking um, of the statement that, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think that's what we saw. The Democrats could have full party control. Let's just push everything through and we'll kind of leave Republicans and half of Minnesota in the wayside. Absolutely. Um, we have talked to a number of members, previous candidates, um, former members, lobbyists all across the board. And one theme that we have heard is the speed and lack of transparency um, of this legislative session. We've also since session seen uh, it come out that there are issues in the tax bill. There is this misinterpretation with minors when it comes to the marijuana bill. 
do you believe it? Do you believe that we're probably going to have more yet to come of some of these errors and missteps that were happen that happened this session because of the speed of of ramming this all through? Yeah, and I I really do think that there's going to be corrections that'll have to be made. Now, specifically to that tax bill, um, they said, "Well, we've got plenty of time. We're going to go ahead and and fix that when we go back in session." What I don't want to have for Minnesotans is to hear that the tax bill was fixed and so there's a tax cut because. That's not the case. Taxes are still increased. We increased the state budget by $10 billion and we blew through an $18 billion surplus. Okay, so taxes are not going to be reduced. Um, we will fix those things because we need to. The, the concerns on the marijuana bill, we will definitely get those things fixed too. In the beginning of the session, and I have a good working relationship with Speaker Hortman. I have respect for her. And so as a new leader and sitting down with Speaker Hortman, you know, about a month and a half in when things were moving so quickly on one of our weekly meetings, and I just said, is there a reason we are moving so quickly? What about transparency for the public, uh, for lobbyists, for legislators? What about transparency? And she said, we've waited to do these things and we are going to get them done right away. Speaking of next session, hopefully we can have some some Republican wins. You know, can you speak a little bit to wins that we got this last session, maybe the nursing homes? I know you fought very hard for that funding or other things you hope to, to get done in the upcoming session. Sure. The nursing home funding, we ended up with $300 million for nursing homes at the very last deal, the very end of session. The reason that was concerning is our nursing homes, we've had a number of them close. And all that was being put forward by the Democrats was under $4 million for two years. That's not enough funding for nursing homes that are full. Um, they can't take additional people. Families are having to move their loved ones hours and hours away. Knowing that was going to be a problem as we walked into this session, I was at a breakfast at the governor's residence with the four leaders and staff, and it was a great conversation. It was very unstructured. Nursing homes was something that we had already started as the House Republican Caucus. We had put together a working group wanting to address that issue. I raised that issue that morning in, in January, January 20th, and I said, is it possible that we could look at this sooner rather than later in session. There was agreement there saying, yes, let's look at that. Well, as time went on, we weren't finding solutions, nor were we finding agreements. And again, one of the most needy areas in our state waited till the very end of session, and that was incredibly frustrating. So looking at wins going forward in this next session, we have to fix some things that are very concerning. Do we have a lot of leverage? Uh, that's yet to be seen. What are the what are what is examples of some of the leverage that you can offer to not necessarily gum up the works, but make sure that your perspective, the Republican perspective and the people across the state that voted for Republican candidates, their voices are heard. I think just using our time wisely in committee to make sure that we're raising the questions on any of the bills brought forward. We don't know what the agenda is going to look like from the majority when we go back in February. There obviously is talk about a second bonding bill. We just passed a bonding bill, a historic bonding bill, in that we um, had some compromise. There were things that were from different areas of the state. There were some definite clunkers in there that are, are disappointing. But there's talk of another bonding bill coming through. I would say at a minimum, that is going to be our starting point of some leverage. Whether or not they are serious and want to push through a bonding bill, I can't answer that at this point. As we also look forward, so we have 2024 legislative session around the corner. It's also, you know, 2024 election cycle around the corner. Um, 
unlike the Democrats, the Republicans don't have quite the the infrastructure, you know, party support that um, to to get out in the field, to be door knockers, have, you know, the millions of dollars. What are you doing as a House caucus and, and as your leadership to work uh, to plan your field strategy, get out there, talk to voters and and make sure that they are well aware of what's going on uh, that the Democrats are pushing through? Yeah, I want Minnesotans to know that our um, caucus is working hard for their constituents right now and the work that we are called to do as legislators. Along with that, Probably from the night of the election, we've already started to think about candidates in the areas that we know we won with very, with very slim margins, protecting all 64. But those seats that we lost with very thin margins, we have eyes on that. We are identifying solid, excellent candidates that can win those districts and come and be a part of the Republican caucus in the Minnesota legislature when we start in 2025. So we are raising funds. We're identifying candidates. We are also looking at how we're messaging going forward and what resonates most with Minnesotans. We are definitely outspent by the Democrats in our races, but that is the case whether we have taken the majority or not. And so using our money wisely and investing it in the right ways and getting out there and being in our communities is one of the best ways to do that. We have the charge to make sure we're reminding voters of what happened in the 23 session. Voters seem to kind of forget as time goes on. They need to know not just what is going to happen in 24, but actually what happened in 23. Uh, To follow up on Becky's question, what are some qualities you look for in legislative candidates? It would be very interesting, I think, for our leaders, I mean, for our listeners to hear from your leadership perspective, what are some good qualities you would think of that would make a good legislative candidate? I think a good legislative candidate is someone that's willing to serve their constituents and serve their communities well, that they're involved in their communities. They maybe had previous elected official experience. I had served for 11 years on my local school board, and that really Uh, was helpful as I came into the legislature, but making sure that people are willing to listen to all of the constituents that they're potentially going to serve, not just those that agree with them, but then be solid in where they stand on issues and able to communicate that in in a great way. That's great. Um, I also, you had mentioned in an article recently about potentially doing a statewide tour, going around and really making sure, again, that voters understand what has passed, the ramifications that might yet be to be realized, but and coming down, can you speak a little bit to, are people going to be able to come out and see you or read about you, see you on their local TVs? Yes, we are working on the details and I'm really excited about that, but a statewide tour to make sure that Minnesotans know again what happened, how it's going to impact them. You know, a middle-class family, are they going to be better off or in a worse position because of what was just passed, both in the the next one or two years to come and five years down the road. Those are things we really want to put out so Minnesotans know, those that agree with us, and then those that maybe saw it differently and need to understand that. So watch for more information, but we're really excited about that tour. The, the DFL went really hard to the left this past session. Give a your perspective on where you think they go this next legislative session. What's the fight that you're going to be up against? Because they really did a a very hard left turn. And so I'm really curious what your perspective is on where do they go to advance their agenda as they see it this next upcoming legislative session? Yeah, I, I have some concerns about where they're going to go. If you would have talked to anyone in Minnesota saying with this full control, do you think our state would be this extreme in what was passed? Um, at this point, I think 
not very many people would have thought that they would have gone this far in spending, social, whatever it possibly is. So I have some concerns as we go into 2024. I know there's been bills for, um, you know, the death with dignity or euthanasia. Um, those have been over the years um, since I believe 19 bills that have been brought forward in the House. Um, I don't know if that's a direction that comes with some definite consequences and concerns. Um, they have spent everything. I don't know that we have any more money to spend, but if if they can find it, I think they will. And so I would say um, this is a good time for Minnesotans to pay attention, look beyond the headline and just read the article wherever it is and come to your own conclusion, whether it's things um, within communities um, that are affected by what is being done here in St. Paul or whether it's in areas of education, again, in your taxes, on any of those things, I think is all up for grabs, you know, kind of a last ditch, not knowing what's going to happen in this next election. Now, I know we we just have a minute or two more with you. I have one last question here that I wanted to ask personally. So one of my major frustrations with Democrats is um, as being a Republican in Minnesota politics or Republican woman in politics in general is a lot of times Democrats say Republicans hate women. You know, you're a gender traitor. I've been called a gender traitor, right, for, for working for Republican candidates, for being a Republican as a woman. How do you respond to that? I, I have to imagine you've run into some of that as well. Absolutely. Um, Republicans do not hate women. We don't hate women at all. And being the first woman and black woman to represent the House Republican Caucus, um, that was a question that was posed to me in the beginning. And what, have I, what I have always said is if people think that I have the skills and the ability to do the job at hand, don't look at it because of my gender or my race. Just let me do the job. And I think that's what most Republicans feel. I don't know why that has not changed in the the perception of the public, but I'm here to help change that and let people know Republicans do not hate women. Women can do an excellent job. That also means that we're not going to get rid of the job that a man is doing either. I think it's really important that people are looked at, at their with their ability, get in and do the work, male or female, but we do not hate women. I agree. And I, b I believe that you're a great face voice to, to help give that message across. So I appreciate all you're doing on that. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Well, thank you so much for coming here today. We're excited to see uh, where the statewide tour goes, what next legislative session happens. Um, we'll be fighting the good fight with you and um, hope to be helpful as you head in and, you know, win back that Republican majority in the House. That is our intent. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you and look forward for more. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I got to say, you know, it's exciting to me. I, I keep harping on it, but, you know, Republican women in politics, we we don't have a lot of them. We don't have a lot of them with a platform. So it is exciting for me to have Leader Damoth on to hear a little bit more of her. I have, this is my first time meeting her personally. And so for me, that was exciting to meet her face to face and have that opportunity to to chat with her and hear a little bit more about her time at the legislature. I had not met her before we recorded the interview. I think she has tremendous potential. Um, and I was really happy that we got the opportunity to speak with her. I think that the legislative session, I think it's fair to say um, that the legislative session was surprising for a number of levels. Uh, I think that the level of unity that the Democrats had to push their agenda um, did not leave a lot of room for Republicans to negotiate uh, and 
pluck off more of their members. There was a lot of discipline with their members in some tough areas and some subjects that I, I want to come back to in this little recap. But I think Leader Damoth um, uh, has tremendous potential, uh, tremendous potential. Uh, and I was very impressed by the interview, her where she was going. I was excited to hear about the statewide tour that they're doing. Um, and some messaging that they're going to have. And I think that the next session is going to be a real opportunity for Republicans to distinguish themselves a bit. You know, it's uh, it, I'm a big football fan. And so I although the first session was real, uh, I do think because of the dynamics that I think Republicans needed some opportunities to see how the, the Democrats were going to govern. And I got a sense in our interview that Damoth had the leader Damoth had taken a lot of notes she was ready and she was prepared for this upcoming session. And I think there's going to be some really good contrast and I'm excited about that. I also uh, like the idea of the statewide tour coming up. Uh, it seems to be coming up the next week or so. Um, I think that's people are paying attention. And so I have a lot of hope in, in, inside me that the next session, I think Republicans are going to do more to differentiate themselves. And I think, uh, hold the Democrats' feet to the fire. There's opportunities there, particularly um, on the Social Security. Let me start over. There's a number of opportunities, particularly on the message of Democrats campaign one way and they led in office another way. Uh, the Social Security tax, I think, is a clear example. And we talked about that with Leader Damoth. There, there are, I think, approximately 10 Democrats, a combination of both House and Senate candidates, who campaigned on eliminating the Social Security tax, who voted to not eliminate, weren't a part of the final deal and weren't able to convince their leadership that there need to be a full elimination. So I think I think there's a narrative that I think we've uncovered that I think Leader Damoth touched on, which is that Democrats campaigned one way and they governed another way. And I think the question is going to come to is this next session, how far they go. But I do believe after speaking with later, Leader Damoth and, and our conversation yesterday or when we when we spoke with her, that I think that this this upcoming session, I think there's going to be more contrast and more uh, of a, a more forceful fight from legislative Republicans on the agenda. And I'm very optimistic and I have complete faith that, that Leader Dame is going to lead that charge. I think that uh, I was really impressed and I was, it was really fortunate that we had that opportunity to sit down and talk with her. You know, I think that you touched on a couple items that I, that I'm excited about and, and think that Leader Damoth will do a great job of navigating is holding the Democrats' feet to the fire a little bit more in this upcoming session um, when it comes to what they campaigned on versus what they're passing. And also, she as she mentioned, uh, the talk of another bonding bill. It sounds like that's going to be, you know, hopefully a no-go for Republicans. They just passed records amount of spending this last session. And and so I'm hopeful that we see a lot more, hear a lot more from from the Republicans pushing back on that. And and the statewide tour, I think, again, I, I'm most excited about this. I think it's a really great opportunity to speak with voters, to speak with stakeholders, whether they're school board, city leaders, um, business leaders in communities, and, and of course, the media around the state. And as we, we discussed with her, you know, I think, leading up to the 2024 session, really being able to remind voters 
what the Democrats passed in the 2023 session, which by the time we get to November 2024 is going to be, you know, 18, 19 months ago. Um, So there's a lot of work that's going to go into reminding voters what was passed and some of those things that haven't even become taken into effect as we talked about kind of the game playing that uh, Democrats did with punting some of these effective dates and action dates of some of these radical laws beyond the 2024 election date. So um, a lot of work is going to need to be done uh, to remind voters of of exactly what that looks like, exactly what those repercussions are going to be for for our paychecks, for our businesses, for our Main Street Minnesota. Um, and I'm excited and hopeful that uh, Damoth is going to be a good leader of the charge there. You touched on it a little bit in your opening remarks, uh, discussing the recap of the interview, but I just want to say, in light of our conversations that we've had over the last couple of weeks, particularly with uh, the panel discussion that you organized with some Republic leaders, it was really good to see strong voice from a female leader coming in with the legislative leadership. And I think there needs to be more of Leader Damoth out there. If there's anything that I would, message I would have from this is the state, the suburbs, need to see more of Leader Damoth. And I hope that there's more, that there's opportunities out there because I think she's a strong leader. This legislative session, I think, is going to have there be a lot of more opportunities for contrast. She's got a strong leadership position. She was great in the interview. I just hope we see more of her out there on the campaign show because I think that her message and what she represents is going to be a good message for Republicans to have connections and discussions all across the state, but particularly in the suburbs. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And I think, you know, at a time when Republicans are largely painted into a box, whether we do it ourselves, like with maybe the Solutions or Suburban Solutions Caucus, or or just let the Democrats do it, um, she's not a white female, or I'm sorry, she's not a white Republican male, right? I, I'm nothing against white Republican males, um, but she, she, as she, you know, she's a minority, she's a person of color, she is a, a woman, and I think it's just really incredible for us to be able to to share that we do have a diverse party, we do have other interesting voices um, that that can be not only part of our party but leading our party. And what I think what's important, and I said this on a the previous episode, is I don't know to what degree the white males inside the Republican Party understand how to message right now to suburban women. And so I think it's time, until they figure that out, I think we need to play to our strengths. And there's a Republican leader in the House who I think strong, knows the legislative process, is ready for a fight, is going to be there for Republicans. And I think the best thing that Republicans can do that want to see the party succeed is give Leader Damoth all the opportunities that that she can get to speak and be out there. Because I think that the more that the general public sees her out there as leader, talking about what the Democrats did and contrasting it what with Republicans want to do, but also coming from her perspective and who she is, I think that's going to be great for the Republican brand. And overall, it's a plus for us. Completely agree. Well, speaking of white males, Let's talk presidential politics. How about that transition? Um, That was really good. So big news with the local angle. Congressman Dean Phillips mulling, being encouraged, potentially throwing his hat in the ring. 
presidential politics, uh, to the president democratic presidential ticket. Um, I think this is rather exciting. I, you know, I think that on the Republican side, we've been critical of of too many, you know, cooks in the kitchen, too many candidates, you know, making it more of a pathway to Donald Trump. For Phillips, he sees a kind of the opposite. And in, in his interviews that he's been doing over the last week, he says he is encouraging the competition. Um, he thinks that it's a great way for the Democrats, it's a great way for the country to have different voices, to have that conversation. And he said um, one thing that I got to give him some credit to, and and I know you've uh, did some infamous log rolling with him last summer, so I'm interested to get your take on this. Um, but he's great at the messaging. He he's a really Dean Phillips is a Congressman Phillips is a really effective, um, thoughtful messenger in in my mind. I don't have necessarily agree with all of his politics, but he walked this line um, in some of these interviews very well about his support and criticism for Biden at the same time. He said. Um, let's see here. He said he believes deeply in Biden. He noted that he has led the nation through some very difficult times, has done exceptionally well and with grace, and that he would support Biden if he got the Democratic nomination. But we should have some backup plans. He says, if we don't heed this call, shame on us. And the consequences, I believe, are going to be disastrous. So my call is to those who are well-positioned, well-prepared, have good character and competency. They know who they are to jump in because Democrats in the country need competition. So again, he's kind of saying he's not sure if he's ready to jump in, but if there's others that are, do so. What are your thoughts on Congressman Phillips um, potentially jumping in and his general call to, to other Democrats? I think it's great. It's great for democracy. It's good for the process. And in the interest of disclosure, as you pointed out, Congressman Phillips reached out to me last summer. I had sent out a tweet in response to Congressman Phillips doing a, an ad for Liz Cheney, Republican Liz Cheney in Wyoming. And Congressman Phillips, a Democrat from Minnesota, ran an ad in support of Republican Liz Cheney in her primary challenge in Wyoming. I thought it was wonderful to see a Republican being supported by a Democrat and to see Phillips in, lend his support to a Republican candidate. Dean Phillips is obviously a, a partisan Democrat. He identifies as a Democrat, but he has also shown a track record of willing to reach across the aisle and understand that there's a need for working together. If there's one, if there's one aspect of Dean Phillips that I identify with very strongly. It's being part of solutions. After I sent out that tweet of Dean Congressman Phillips asked me if I would participate in a bipartisan log rolling at the state fairgrounds last summer, and I did. I was not successful log rolling. Dean Congressman Phillips was better at me than log rolling, although I don't think either of us would be, if there was an Olympic sport for log rolling, I don't think either of us would be making the team but it was a fun experience. And what it showed on his part was a willingness to engage with people on the other side of the aisle. And what I like about Congressman Phillips is his willingness to do that. And it's something on a personal level that I identify with. I enjoy having conversations with Democrats, even though I consider myself somewhat of a homeless Republican. I enjoy having conversations with Democrats because I think that's where solutions are found. Becky, to be very honest with you, that's what we do on this podcast all the time. What we're trying to do on that this podcast is we're trying to have a safe space where people can have conversations. Where people don't get cut off. It's not a screaming match. We can find ways to disagree without being disagreeable. And I really enjoy that. 
I really enjoy that space that we've created. It's fun. I look forward to it. Your food takes your garbage, but I really <laughs> enjoy this fun space that we've created. And if you and so when I see Dean Phillips on TV talking about Americans who feel that they're politically homeless, that's right. It resonates immediately with me. I think we are overly partisan. We're at an overly partisan time right now. And I think that Dean Phillips could do a lot to help break down those walls and make this country come together more and work and have we, there be more solution-orientated process. Now, that being said, 54 years old, Dean Phillips is a young guy, and he is taking a very strong position publicly, a message that I think he's probably, and a number of people are hearing, he's probably hearing privately. I can't tell you how many Democrats that I've spoken with, partisan Democrats, who I think are very much like you and I. And again, I don't speak for you, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But we've looked at the presidential race and we've said, we've got two 80-year-old plus guys running for president, white guys running for president. That's probably going to be the ticket. It's probably going to be, it's most, it's going to be Biden unless something happens. And I'm not wishing that or ill will on anything, but we need to steal the reality. So we have on the Republican side, Donald Trump, who's nearly 80 in his late seventies. We have Joe Biden who is in his eighties. And so we're going to have at the end, in the, when the next presidential election, we're going to have two very senior white men running for president. And the question is, with roughly 340-some million Americans, is there not someone else who could be running for these positions? Is this the best that we can do? I understand the hierarchy of politics. I understand that it's a pecking order, it's a system, and that there's a line, of, there's a line and there's a process. And Dean Phillips is doing something incredibly unconventional. He's jumping ahead in the line. He's, in essence, butting in line over this, the line that people have for running, in, for running for president. Logically, people would say that if Joe Biden's not running, why aren't we looking towards Kamala Harris, the vice president? And there are, there's a lot of discussion on that. And so I've spoken, I've filibustered here a bit too long, but I just want to say, I like Congressman Dean Phillips. He is a Democrat. On a personal level, I like him. I think his message is perfect. I like. I would like to live in the world where that message is embraced, accepted, resonates. And I would love to be sitting here a year from now talking about the presidential race, and we're talking about two other people running for president on the Democrat and the Republican side, other than Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So I want Dean Phillips to succeed. I want his message to succeed to help other candidates get in the race. I think Dean Phillips would make an incredibly strong presidential candidate. But I'm just also a realist. I didn't come to this opportunity to have a podcast with you, someone who is seasoned as experienced as you are, without being a little bit seasoned and experienced myself. And I'm not naive. And I just know that it's a tough road. But I think Dean Phillips' message should be embraced. He should be applauded. He should be supported. And I hope other people hear his call and either support Phillips for president himself or get in the race. So 
A couple of things that that you hit on. You talked about him being for solutions. This is something we've talked a lot about on the Republican side, needing to be for something, not just against something, needing to to stand for something and have conversations, not just tell people that they're wrong. Phillips is a part of the Problem problem Solvers Caucus in, in Washington. He spent a lot of time, I think, on the campaign trail, traveling around, having these conversations, you know, what was his little ice cream truck, whatever, you know, vehicle that he was, um, you know, he won in a, a district that has tended to to lean red for, for quite a number of years. And so I think that he has shown that he can be a pragmatic um, solution, uh, you know, in toward, toward solutions individual. And I think that is really promising. I, again, I, I would like to see someone like that, maybe a Liz Cheney, like you mentioned, is is comes to mind on the Republican side. And I think that's kind of what we try to do here is to to just have those conversations that are not, you know, the 10 percent on either side that I don't think, you know, Phillips is definitely more of the moderate Democrat, which is exciting. Uh, and just the conversation that I think he can spur. Um, there was a recent poll, uh, you know, that young Democrats do not appreciate or or support uh, President Biden. They're they're not looking for him to be the nominee. And that is someone um, I don't necessarily think they're going to swing Republican, you know, especially if Donald Trump's the nominee. Um, but they could stay home and that would be detrimental to their, t- you know, positions on the ticket up and down the ballot. So um, Phillips is great. I think a conversation that he is spurring is fantastic. Um, and uh, but I want to get into the age thing. Uh, specifically, there is an interesting reformer piece um, by J. Patrick Hooligan, um that we can tweet out uh, in addition to this. Um, he wrote a commentary piece that says Democrats should listen to Dean Phillips or catastrophe may await. He goes on to talk about um, President Joe Biden has accomplished more important progressive policy priorities since Lyndon Johnson. But in a recent poll, he's running, this is this is Kulikin's words, in a recent poll, he's running even with a thrice indicted, would-be authoritarian Donald Trump. Given the electoral college tilt towards Republican, that translates into a Trump victory. So Kulikin's take on this is that having someone, having it be a Biden-Trump ticket is going to be detrimental, could be detrimental to to Democrats and and allow for Trump's path to victory, which I think is an interesting take. Um, But he kind of goes then into his support of, again, why Phillips is the person um, and talks a little bit about that age thing that we mentioned. Now, we don't want to be ageist on this podcast, but again, you're just looking at the facts, right? Even the healthiest, you know, pillar of strength at 82, which Biden would be in his second term, the probability of having some sort of health issue between 82 and 86 is just incredibly likely, right? I mean, some sort of major health issue, whether it's a fall, whether it's something heart brain related. I mean, it's just incredibly likely. Um, in fact, there was a in this Kulikin piece as well, there is a, a quote from it says a Democrat source close to Phillips that says, you can only be an airline pilot to 65. It's not crazy. We would consider someone's health and well-being when we're talking about the person who is going to be leader of the free world. That's incredibly. I, I had never really thought about it that. But 65. So currently our president is 15 years. He would for the last 15 years would have been unable to fly an airplane if he was a pilot. That is, I mean, that is something, a very important thing that we need to look at. And it is really concerning, as we've already seen concerns with with, uh, President Biden, um, that that is going to be that potentially the leader of our world at 82. 
I didn't mean to cut you off, but you're making a really good point. And I, and I normally don't ask to speak when we usually don't do that to each other, but I raised my finger because I wanted to follow up on that. That's a fantastic point. Do you think, and I'm, I just wanted to hone in on your point that you're making, which is just fantastic. Do you think that there should be an age requirement, an age limit to be president? Oh, I don't know, because I feel like, I mean, this is always, this is something we chatted a little bit about when Nikki Haley got into the race, because she has made some competency, I believe, uh, suggestions of competency. So I don't know that there's necessarily, necessarily should be an age restriction, but I certainly think there needs to be something with competency, some sort of of ability to to look at that. And not only with president and to to you know veer off for a second, not only with president, but with Congress maybe as a whole. We've seen we're seeing this right now with Senator Dianne Feinstein, um, who recently her daughter has been granted the power of attorney over her, but she is still able to vote in Congress. That seems a little questionable, in fact, and I don't. To be sensitive about it, she was just hospitalized after a fall uh, recently prior to this recording. So to be sensitive to that and, and of course, not wishing ill on anybody. But that is a problem that I think she is close to 90 and um, has had a fall. She doesn't even have power of attorney over herself or her medical needs. Um, She certainly should not have a vote in Congress. So I do think that there needs to be some sort of you know, uh, backboard here, uh, some sort of barricade of of when people have power that they maybe are not mentally or competent to, to hold. You make a great point also. First of all, compliments to Kulikin for using the word thrice, one of my favorite. <laughs> and uh, that East Coast education and his elitism is showing. And we've had him on as a guest. He's great. And we hope to have him on again, but thrice is just a great word. There is a possibility. And we discussed this previously when we talked about the presidential race. There is a path for Trump to win. There's absolutely a path for Trump to win. And I, I just to go, just to not put you on the spot, but just to get, just do a check-in on where you are. Do you, I've long held the position that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. Where are you at today thinking about it? I mean, I think if the election is, you know, the nomination was being wrapped up in a bow tomorrow, absolutely. I do still see a path. And this is something we got a a Facebook message from an activist friend who said she wants to remind people that this isn't a done deal, that you can still participate in the presidential primary here in Minnesota, that we can do our part to hopefully not give Minnesota's votes to President or to, to President Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump. Um, that we can, you know, give give our nomination delegates to to someone else. So I am hopeful. I've been seeing some promising things. Again, my guy Chris Christie has had just recently had a fundraiser with some really incredible names on his um, behalf. Some some folks that really are good, strong, um, active names in Republican politics that are supporting him. Both, you know, like Governor Haley Barber and also longtime donors. Um, so I do see potential paths, but like we've you know talked about here in the state with our local endorsement, it is tough, and I I I, I want to be cautiously optimistic, right? I want to say that there is a will, there is a way. It, who knows what's going to happen with the Trump indictments over the next year? If that's going to help or hurt him, I'm leaning towards helping him, unfortunately, in the Republican nomination. But I do think there is a path, and and my personal belief is Chris Christie is the best um, one that has an ability to move through that. I've always been a big fan of Chris Christie, and if I was voting 
for who could be the Republican nominee, Christie would probably get my vote. I did want to go back to something because there's been a lot of conversation about Kamala Harris. Do you think that if Biden isn't the nominee, that it that Republicans and people should be looking, or I'm sorry, let me start over. If Kamala, if Joe Biden is not the nominee, doesn't it immediately go to Kamala Harris? Just from, I know there's not a procedure where it goes to Kamala Harris because of internal party politics. We're not talking about Joe Biden resigning the presidency or anything, but from a nomination standpoint, isn't the logical torch passing, doesn't it go from Biden to Harris? I mean, yes and no. I think that there's oftentimes, you know, Pence is running for president as former VP. Um, but I think we also have a history of just having some both good and bad vice presidents, you know. So Biden was, you know, Obama's vice president. I think we saw definitely a different Biden back then as VP, not necessarily expecting that he was going to run for president. Um we had Dick Cheney as a VP, uh, and now, of course, we have we have Kamala. I don't necessarily believe I haven't. There's not been a lot to make me believe that there is a groundswell of support that's going to come out behind Kamala. I think that she has been um, criticized, rightly so, for her word salads and her ridiculous statements. And um, I think that she, when she was in Congress, she is a smart individual and and you know her lawmaking and policies were maybe a little bit different than what we've seen from her i don't know obviously some of the, i was going to say some of that is staff you know obviously presidential um politics that that goes on within the white house they can put if if you're a watcher of veep right a uh, great show and they can make that position kind of what they want it to be. If they want it to be a very active, strong, have policies that they stand for and and are a leader in their own right, or if they're just kind of, you know, a, a, a significant other, you know, kind of standing in the wings sort of position. And so I think with Kamala, I think they've tried to give her some opportunities. I think that she has, from my perspective, failed miserably and has not done a very good job of making herself look like much other than a good um, surrogate at times to stand there, for, you know, for the president. I, I don't think that she would be a person that the Democrats would would lift up on that platform. I'd like to get your take on this. We've talked a lot about, particularly in the last couple of weeks, about Republicans not taking opportunities to showcase the talent and leadership of females, particularly at a time, I think we would both subscribe to this, is that the Republican messaging has not appealed to a lot of women in the suburbs and across the state. One of the knocks on Phillips about having this conversation about Kamala Harris, about getting in the presidency, is it's perceived to be a little bit of a knock on Kamala Harris. And, and Phillips has played some defense on that. He's been asked about it, and he's framed it up as that the media's portrayal of who Kamala Harris is hasn't been accurate and that she's doing a great job. But the truth of the matter is that I think Biden and Harris are fused as a team, one and two. They are the president and the vice president. And so when Dean Phillips talks about there needing to be a new candidate, although he's not saying he's running because, although he's not saying he's running because he's concerned about whether Kamala Harris could be the candidate, he's running, he's focused on Biden. Do you think, so number one, 
do you, and Dean Phillips has faced some criticism. He's faced some criticism for speaking up to the level that he is and not, in essence, running around or butting ahead of, of Kamala Harrison line. So some of the similar conversations that we've had on the, that Republicans have had, the Democrats are now having related to Phillips. There's some online discussion about what about Kamala Harris? Isn't this being disrespectful to Kamala Harris? Kamala Harris. I want to get your take on that, but I just want to lay out my perception of Harris is that incredibly high expectations coming in and she has been somewhat invisible in this administration. I do not think it was very historic. If you set aside all the partisanship, it was incredibly historic to have a female sworn in as vice president. And I don't perceive that she's being held to a higher or lower standard. I just view her as being not a very strong vice president and she has not, I think, risen to the occasion. And what I mean by that, risen to the occasion, is that if there was a widespread conversation about the competency and the ability of Joe Biden to lead, the easiest place for people to look for an answer would be as number two. And there's not a lot of people doing that. So I think the perception of Kamala Harris that I have of being somewhat invisible and not out there as much as vice president is shared by a number of people. Is that fair? Would you agree, disagree? No, I would completely agree with that. I think that, um, again, because of her time in Congress, because of her her history, her experience, I think a lot of people were very hopeful uh, what she would do in this position and how she could rise as a a strong, powerful woman um, in the number two position. However, the one thing I do want to say is I think that saying whoever, you know, media, Democrats, whoever is saying that uh, the vice president should be next in line to to be the presidential nominee set in my perspective, from my perspective, sets a very dangerous precedent of using positions, strong positions as a stepping stone. I don't think that I know that that's the case. I know we see it a lot in Minnesota of, you know, candidates on both sides of the aisle and, and you know, don't want to step ahead, you know, listen to the hierarchy of members of Congress, of the delegations and, you know, the office that holders in the state legislature. I think that in man, woman, whoever, the best person for the position should be the person nominated and elected and everything of that sort. And I think saying this person was the vice president, so they should be the next person. No, that's not. That's just not simply how it works. They should be the vice president that you should ask somebody to their ticket because they add something to your ticket because they're going to be a good number two, somebody that has characteristics or experience that you don't hold. Uh, and and so a good compliment to the presidential ticket, obviously have some polit- political, um, you know, pluses as well to help you win over. But I don't buy that. So that to me is something that I personally just think is an in- inappropriate um, way to, to navigate through who are going to be our nominees on either side of the aisle. One thing I am interesting, and I, I'm curious your take on this, is when it does come to the kind of the hierarchies of our Minnesota delegation, Senator Amy Klobuchar has been somebody who has long, I mean, I swear every two, four years is she's on the short list for Supreme Court. She's on the short list for the administrative role. She's on the short list for presidential or, or vice presidential. And we obviously saw her campaign that she ran a couple of years ago. Um, 
what do you think the inner workings of the Klobuchar team uh, take is on this of, of Phillips potentially throwing his hat in the race or at least even even being part of the conversation that she currently is not part of herself? I think that Senator Klobuchar is, let me just say, when Biden was, it was clear it was going to be Biden, I thought that Klobuchar was going to be a log- would be a logical pick. It didn't work out that way, but I thought that it made sense on paper. I think that Senator Klobuchar has ambitions. I think she wants to run in her own right. The, I think it's a very spot. It's a very sophisticated question that you ask, and I think it raises a couple of possibilities. Dean Phillips is in what I would consider to be a safe district, and in, in the interest of disclosure, I should note that I worked for Eric Paulson's first campaign for Congress when he won. I consider Eric Paulson to be a friend and supported his campaign, worked on his campaign. Dean Phillips beat him. In 2018. And Dean Phillips is a much different politician than Senator Klobuchar. I think Senator Klobuchar has taken a very slow and steady and consistent methodical path to rise. Maybe that's the difference between the House and the Senate. The Senate, they're up every six years. But Senator Klobuchar is a planner. She's detailed. I think that she, at some point, would want to run again. And so I think that, I don't think that Dean Phillips is being reckless by any stretch of the imagination. I do think that based on Dean Phillips's career, he's more inclined to test the fence, to see if that electrical fence is on. He's much more willing to take political risks. I mean, I think it's very much, um, Senator Klobuchar is a little bit more of the old school mentality of things. And Dean Phillips, I think, is a little bit more new school, right? I think just in there. describe it. Yeah, I mean, I just, which I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit of wanting some of that old school leaders in the Republican Party on with our panel discussion. But I I think you're completely right. I think that, you know, Dean Phillips is kind of like the Gen Z-esque, you know, let's let's throw it out and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, then we just move on. And and Klobuchar is a little bit more of, and I'm not saying this, they're not that far apart in age, but Klobuchar is a little bit more of like the boomer-esque type of things of making sure you have your lists and your to-dos and your things that, you know, are going through in progress. Um, so I, I I completely agree. I just think very different mentalities surrounding that. I don't think either one is right or wrong. Um, I think they're just very incredibly different individuals. And um, I, I would just love to be a fly on the wall, though, to see what uh, Senator Klobuchar and her team uh, thought when all this came out. Yeah. One more point on that. Boyce Olson mentioned in his morning take that former Senator Melissa Franzen is look, being looked upon as a potential challenger to Dean Phillips. There's a risk associated with what Dean Phillips is doing here. And probably the best way that I could describe, he is much more willing to think outside the box, push the envelope a bit, and be more aggressive politically in advancing a position that he has publicly, as you articulated. I think Dean Phillips is willing to take risks. And I think it's going to be, I think it'd be unfortunate to see Dean Phillips get a challenger because of a thoughtful conversation that he wants to have about where we're going with our country in terms of the direction of how we're nominating people and some of the requirements that I think we all believe. I stand by my position, and in closing on this subject, I will say that I believe that Dean Phillips is taking a public position that Republicans and Democrats privately are saying. I think there are a lot of Republicans who privately wish that there was someone other than Donald Trump, as he is right now, but also people who would say, 
in his late 70s running, could we not get someone who's a little younger, a little bit more enthusiasm? And I guarantee you, there are Democrats who are saying it would be great if we could get someone other than Biden. And so I think Dean Phillips should be applauded and for having the bravery to go out and speak. I hope there isn't, I hope he doesn't face an inner party retribution and a challenge against him because of it. But that's the reality of politics, and he's willing to take those risks. But I applaud him for doing it. Two final comments and then a question. My first comment is that um, in that Kulikin piece as well, he he did mention that um, unlike a lot of people in Washington, he doesn't feel that Phillips is one that's just desperate for attention, that he's just doing this um, because he believes that he he wants more attention. I do think he's really trying to spur a conversation on that side of things. Um, and, and I do think to your point, it is, it is a big risk. Um, he certainly did not need to run for Congress. He has personal success with his, his business and, and wealth and, and financing and everything that I think one could hope to have in life with a, a family and business and everything. Um, so it is a risk. I, I think that he is pretty popular in his district. So I think any challenge would probably not be successful from my eyes, but, um, hear it here, here, Let's hear it here first. Do you think that Biden, or I'm sorry, that Phillips officially launches a, a presidential campaign this year? No. Do you think that we would, in the next uh, four, eight, 12 years, we could see that? Yes. And one po- one thing I want to point out that's a, a good data point, uh, Congressman Phillips pointed this out on Twitter, and he noted with three Democratic primary challengers already in the race, the New York Times poll shows that 55% of Democrats and 83% of those under 30 are demanding alternatives. And, and Phillips went on to say, we can't ignore the numbers. And he added, he goes, that if Joe Biden is our nominee, I'll be all in. Go with Joe. The data, and I think where a lot of people's hearts and minds are with Phillips, the reality is it just throws off the rhythm and the cadence of politics. I don't think he runs this cycle. I think he continues to have this conversation and this discussion. I think at some point we're going to see Dean Phillips running for president. I think Dean Phillips is destined for higher office. That'll be up to the voters to decide if he gets elected to higher office. But I don't think Dean Phillips is going to stay in the third congressional district a very long. I don't think he's going to lose, but I do think he has ambitions for higher office. And he is an incredibly attractive, talented candidate. And I think Republicans and Democrats are going to be attracted to his candidacy. My last thought before we move on, as um, we had previously discussed, you know, the, the need we want to get some young Republican voices on to to chat about their thoughts on the presidential campaign and else. I think we also need to put a pin in. Let's let's invite some young Democrats on. I think I'd be really interested to see with that number that you just mentioned of some 85% of, of folks under 30, Democrats under 30, um, not supporting President Biden. Uh, I, I'm very intrigued of how that is going to play with down ballot tickets and voting. If those folks do stay home, if Biden is the nominee, that could have a crazy impact across the country in some of these races. So um, I, I'd be very interested to, to have a conversation with them of if they're going to be active, if they're going to be out there, how they're going to be um, trying to make their voices heard because Democrats typically lean on them. It's funny you should mention that because that was a conversation I wanted to have off air, but I have some names I want to discuss with you because some opportunities have come our way. And I think we should plan that in the next couple of weeks, but it's a, I, I spot on and we'll talk about it off air because I have some names and some conversations I've 
I've already had that I think would be beneficial. We should do. I think it's a great segment, Becky. Great. Well, things are heating up with our food fight this week. Oh, it was a good transition. Thanks. Top grill items. Now, um, again, in the interest of disclosure, Becky and I know that we're going to be talking about top grilled items. But I want to point out to you something. That when I asked Becky last night via text what we were going to talk about for a food fight, um, I offered uh, things to grill. And her response was puzzling. And I'm still, I didn't sleep well last night because of it. I just been, it just kind of threw me off a little bit. So I got to ask you, when I asked you about stuff we were going to grill, your response was to say meat and stuff or other things. At your household or growing up, what goes on the grill other than meat? I mean, well, let's discuss it, but you can have lots of stuff other than meat on the grill. All right. Now I'm going to do reverse this time. Last week. Uh, when we were doing the food fight, I mentioned what I thought was going to be on your list in advance. What I've done this week is I've written it down, but I'm not, I'm going to let you go through your list because I have a feeling that my criticism last week that I'd said before your list, you may have called an audible and changed some on the fly because you didn't want to face the criticism. So this week I'm keeping my kind of what my prediction list is on your list. I'll re- report after to see how close I am. Okay. All right. You go first. So I'm going first with, you know, it might be a little controversial. It is a meat item. I mean, somewhat. I'm going hot dog. Man, a hot dog with a little bit of char from the grill. Oh, my gosh. Mustard, onions, all this fixings. Delicious. Um, What kind of, what brand of hot dogs? I mean, I'm not super picky. But like I would typically go like You're an not all beef. super picky about hot dogs. I would typically go like an all beef ballpark Frank or something. Okay, that's fine. If there's anything I'm going to be picky on, it's it's hot dogs. Do you microwave hot dogs at your house? No. Oh, thank goodness. That would have been the end of the show right there. Oh, you know, all right. The hot dog. So I mean, I don't. To be fair, I don't. We don't eat hot dogs very often around here. Not if it's not on the grill, so. So I'm going to start off. So my list grill, this is, this is not by any means a regular list of things that I grill, but if I'm going to grill and I'm going to do something, so a little, a couple disclaimers on my list. Um, okay, all, here we go. First of all, so after I got uh, hit by a car, somebody, a good friend of mine dropped off some steaks in my house and I had the most glorious steak a few weeks after I got hit by a car and it was a tomahawk steak. I had never grilled one before, never had one before. It was absolutely amazing. And so I'm going to sound like a snot because that's number one on my list, but it was given to me as a gift. It was absolutely the best steak I've ever had before. So tomahawk steak is the number one thing to grill. But I I think I've only had it. I may have had one growing up when I was a kid, but the most recent one was just absolutely fantastic. Tomahawk steak. It's this big, massive steak. It's just beautiful steak. Man, the price point between my number one and your number one is a little different. Yep. Huh? <laughs> uh, my number two is just kind of a, a veer off for my first one. I got to go brats, baby. Like, give me a good old beer brat, wild rice brat, cheddar jalapeno brat. I could have made an entire list just of variations of brats. Um, my my mother-in-law makes her makes sauerkraut and homemade sauerkraut with a 
mustard, all the different variations in a brat. Ooh. I don't want to disclose anything you don't want to disclose, but you have some family connections to Wisconsin. Is that sure do? Yeah. That, was that where some of your list is influenced by? I would say probably so. I've spent a decent Good. amount of time in there. Good. My second is a ribeye steak. Oh, uh, we're, this, just, we're just staying fancy. I remember, it's top five. It's what you want. Yeah. Uh, I'm going ribeye steak. I love to grill steak. I grill on a very regular basis, a couple times a week. Love to grill. And the vast majority of times I'm grilling steaks or I'm grilling my number three, which I'll wait to get to. All right. So my number three is is simply just a chicken breast grilled chicken. I um, eat grilled chicken multiple days of the week, except for when I was pregnant. It was my top uh meat aversion of food aversion and I probably was about four or six months after I even had the baby that I could even stomach uh chicken breast anymore but from the grill again I like a little char on that you got the little crunchy pieces on the end my number three is a hot dog but it's an ambassador hot dog specific Mm. brand of hot dog I love hot dogs absolutely love hot dogs and uh I probably grill hot dogs the most What's what's and, your uh, toppings of choice on there? All your different mustard variations? Mustard. I am a ketchup on hot dog guy. Mm-hmm. No. Um, but I love hot dogs and uh, ambassador hot dogs. I like grilling hot dogs more than brats. All right. Uh, I'm just a hot. It's very, it's, and I go to a lot of, my kids play a lot of sports. There's a lot of burgers and brats that are grilled at uh, ball games. And I'm a big hot dog on the brat. Simple, easy, no problems. My, Number four is where we're going to veer off a little bit. I like me. I like some corn on the cob on the grill. I knew I knew I was going to get the disappointing look. It's delish. Are this, you is, this what, is this what you meant when you said meat and other things? Yeah. I mean, I was curious if we're just doing meat items. That's very different than grill. It's stuff on the grill. I can't help you with your answers. It's stuff on the grill. You chose I, stuff, not meat dishes on the grill. Say again? You you chose. You chose that it was going to be top items on the grill, not meat I items. Mine was going to be meat and other things, meat and maybe yeah, fish. But that wasn't the, the care, category we chose. That's right. So corn on the cob. Yep. Uh, how do you how do you cook it on uh, corn on the cob? You, you just, you know, peel back the husk a little bit. Because some people don't take them. Some people keep the husk on. You keep, I, I, you keep the majority of the husk on, I would say. But, you know, I, I'm a very um, scared of fire. And sometimes that husk starts fire. So, you a Frankenstein's monster? He was scared of fire, too. <laughs> sure. Sure. Maybe. Okay. My number four is, this is, my neighbor taught me this. It's beer can chicken. Mm-hmm. Chicken, beer can on the inside absolutely delicious i haven't had it myself but i've heard heard good things so uh i'll check it out my number five is a foil packet so you know you cut up the potatoes and some peppers and onions you throw it with olive oil and seasoning in a foil on the grill okay what what kind of what do you put in there i would typically just do like peppers and onions okay so my number five is and this is a recent. I'm a big hamburger guy too. But Cub Foods makes a pub burger that someone told me about roughly a month and a half ago. And mm-hmm. I absolutely love them. Nice. Pub, foods, pub burgers. You know, I don't know if I'm bucking for sponsors. Yeah, but 
Pub Foods Pub Burgers are great. I encourage people to get them every time. They're great burgers. You can get the the plain ones. They make some with with cheese, jalapeno. They make some with bacon. Those are the things to grill. Um, that's the grill list. Um, now, let me tell you what I thought your list was going to have on it. Ready for this? Ready. Okay. Number one, I thought you were going to have an Impossible Burger. Oh, gross. Come on. Okay. I thought you were going to have watermelon. Mm, no. Eggplant. I'm not a vegetarian. Zucchini. Oh, to be fair, zucchini in the little girl. Uh, so, okay, so zucchini. So so my list, I had Impossible Burger number one, watermelon number two, eggplant number three, and zucchini number four. Zucchini is actually on your list. Well, no, it's not on my list, but it is delicious. You never grilled zucchini? No, I have. I have like a little grill pan that you put like veggies in. Called it. Absolutely called it. Well, this is a reminder that we're only going to do a couple more food fights with Brock, Cooper, and Becky. We're going to be do a couple of the state fair, and then we're going to pivot to fantasy football for the entire yeah, football. Baby, game. you're going down. I'm looking forward to this. I'm not feeling good. Becky's been pretty, pretty cocky off air about her football picking skills. Um, a lot of swagger. So it's going to be, I think it may be, it's going to be an interesting season. Sure is. Tweets. Yeah. Tweets of the week. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go ahead. So my tweet this week is another just kind of random funny one that I saw. It says, I wish we could have subtitles in real life because I can't hear anything anyone is saying to me. And I got to say, I am one that watches, has TV with the subtitles on all the time. And I'd really like subtitles in real life. So that one really spoke to me. That's great. Um. My tweet of the week is from Steve Guest. Steve Guest uh, is uh, he's conservative. He's on Twitter, at Steve Guest. He tweeted out on August 4th, one of my favorite George Bush moments. And it was a flashback 21 years ago. George W. Bush was on the golf course when he delivered this classic line. Quote, I call upon all nations, whoever they can, to stop these ki- terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. Bush then proceeds to crush the ball down the fairway. And it just reminded me of just simpler times where we had a president who was on the golf course. There weren't indictments. There weren't all this other stuff going on. And he could just nail a golf ball down the fairway. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of George W. Bush. I'm a big fan of Dick Cheney. I miss those times. And it just 21 years ago, time fast passes so fast. But tweet of the week to Steve Guest. uh, I was great. Love it. Love it. Well, that's our show. We want to thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broderick and Becky. Before we go, we'd like to remind you again to show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast or any platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. We're also on Twitter at bbbreakpod. Again, Twitter at, at bbbreakpod. I want to thank everyone again. Becky, thank you so much. We will return next week. See you then. See ya.